0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner?
1: Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. What do we know about the experience of growing up in the Middle Ages? Well, quite a lot, actually, according to Dr. Emily Joan Ward, who currently teaches at University College London and will soon be taking up a lecturing post at the University of Edinburgh. In today's Everything You Want to Know episode, Emily will be answering your questions, along with some of the internet's top search queries on childhood in the Middle Ages. Putting the questions to Emily was David Musgrove
2: okay so uh we are on our latest everything you want to know podcast and today we are discussing medieval childhood and the experience of being a medieval child so we've got a load of questions to get through and uh the first bunch are on the concept and experience of childhood emily how are you doing are you you ready to to chat
1: children yes i'm really looking forward to it um and i think there have been some excellent questions that have come in so I'm, i'm i'm yeah quite excited to get started
2: (laughs) excellent okay so the first question uh is a big search engine topic is when were children considered adults and we had a sort of a subsidiary query from uh, ado mohammed who wanted to know how early in life did children take up what we would consider today as adult responsibilities
1: Yeah, so I think that this, um, I'm going to give a classic historian's answer here, that this seems to be quite a straightforward question, but actually has a very complex answer, actually, much as today. So it's very hard to give an answer which takes account of the huge variety in children's experiences and the sort of wide overlapping ideas about um, age, age identity and sort of what did it mean to be an adult? What did it mean to be a child? And there's still, I think, something of a popular belief that perhaps children were treated as mini adults in the Middle Ages. Um, so I'm hoping that's that's something we can put to rest firmly in, uh, in some of the answers to the questions today. Or that a concept of childhood didn't exist in the Middle Ages. That's a kind of belief that came out from sort of some of the writing um, by historians in the 1960s, although medievalists were very firmly arguing against that. So I think the first thing to start with is perhaps definitions. Uh, So we have lots of um, ideas about the medieval life cycle that are circulating in the period between 500 and 1500. Um, And childhood's divided into different stages in those ideas of the life cycle. So we've got infancy, infantia in Latin, um, which is between the ages of about zero and seven. And that term infantia, infans, comes from the word infans, meaning incapable of speech. So this is a period where it's seen that children, young people are unable to articulate fully, uh, not just speaking, but also conceptually, mentally. So after age seven, you then go into a full period of childhood. Um, The Latin term for that is pueritia, between about seven and 12 or 14. Um, And that's introducing there a bit of a gender difference because those um, 12 was more significant for young girls. Age 14 was seen to be more significant for young boys. And the term pueritia derives from the word puris or puritan. So, purity, pure, and um, this idea of childhood innocence, which you might come on to talk about a little bit later. So these theoretical and intellectual decisions, well, we may think, well, what, what do they actually have in relation to the realities of child, children's experiences? But they do also influence the ways that, for example, children are represented in legal texts, what they could do at certain ages, um, the conduct and advice that's provided to guide children's behaviour, or descriptions of children in literary and historical works. So these definitions aren't just sort of theoretical ideas that exist in the cloud they also are having a very real impact on children's uh, lived experiences and these specifications of chronological age sometimes also reveal subtle differences between the ways in which infants were treated versus children versus adolescents so there is a kind of developmental um, idea there as well. But the divisions are far less clear-cut when we think about vernacular languages. Um, So although we have these quite clear terms in in, uh, in medieval Latin, when we come to things like Old French, for example, it's not until the 14th century that you have a word adolescence, which conveys an idea of this period post-12 or 14 and adolescence. So then kind of thinking about Ado Mohammed's uh, point about adult responsibilities, we then come to the question of who's an adult in the Middle Ages? And childhood doesn't automatically end, you know, you don't suddenly it hit your 12th or 14th birthday and you'll become a fully-fledged adult in medieval society. But there's a lot of debate about exactly what it did mean to be an adult uh, and uh, how adulthood was defined. So sometimes uh, in these theoretical decisions, adolescence can extend far later than we might assume from a modern perspective. So adolescence can extend into your early 20s, 25, 30. And then after that, you have a period of youth, which isn't what we would today consider um, as sort of young people teenagers Um, but medieval ideas about youth were often more perhaps more similar to what we might today call middle age so youth could still be a stage of life you were going through in your 30s or even into your 40s so these adult responsibilities then well what what are we thinking if we're thinking about things like marriage again the ages of 12 and 14 are quite important there so from the 12th century we get the idea of consent to marriage being attached to those ages that doesn't mean that everyone marries that young and actually a lot of people married several years later or even um, even into their their early 20s or indeed not at all in some cases but those ages do seem to have a legal and a canonical under canon law um, significance as well. So there are all sorts of other adult responsibilities that we could think about. We could think about things like inheritance, which for some young men um, was set at age 21. We could think about things uh, like legal markets, the age of criminal responsibility. Um, We still have today quite a young age of criminal responsibility in the UK comparatively to other European or uh, international ideas around that. Um, And the age of criminal responsibility changes over time and between cultures as much in the Middle Ages as it does today. But it was usually between about the age of 10 and 15. So there's a recognition there. your full legal responsibility within medieval society perhaps wasn't fully developed until you were at least 12, 13, 14. But when we think about those ideas around legal age, um, knowledge of action uh, becomes quite a big thing. Um, So there's a case, for example, in 1299 in England where a 10-year-old boy was sentenced to death for the murder of a young girl. But the reason for this penalty was, and the reason it was so harsh, was specifically Specified as the fact that the boy had hidden the body so it showed an awareness that what he had done was morally wrong um, and it was that fact that actually led to the death penalty being imposed So I think the main point there, perhaps to get across, is that age identity was as complex in the Middle Ages as it is today. And a combination of different factors, so biological, physiological, cultural and social, legal, emotional, intellectual. But there was a recognition by people at the time that you didn't suddenly become an adult overnight and that this was more of a developmental process.
2: That is a fantastic and very full answer, um, which has probably covered off some of our, of our, of our uh, later questions. But that is, that's, that, that's brilliant. That really sets the scene for us. Thank you. I wonder, there's, there's a couple here which, you, which um, you might have referred to a bit already, but let's take a couple together. So Simon Beale uh, on Twitter, a history teacher, I think, asked, what was the medieval concept of childhood and how different was it to our own? And then Emma Hollis wants to know how much were medieval children allowed to be children. I wonder maybe if you could just take those two together and, and just give us a, a, a sort of a broad answer on that.
1: Yeah so I would debate that there wasn't or I would argue that there it wasn't a concept of medieval childhood much as there isn't a concept of childhood today and I think we often go into ideas about childhood with a very fixed idea um, but it's based very much on a, a western usually um, an elite perspective of what childhood is um, and often one that's influenced particularly by sentimental or romanticized ideas in particular that uh, sort of Victorian period and on have developed within our, our modern society so things around ideas around childhood innocence today um, are particularly you can see that coming out particularly they, they're very specific to our own modern cultural context and when we look back at the middle ages that's the same so there isn't this singular medieval concept so but some some similarities perhaps i mean the idea that children's basic needs to need to be provided for by their parents or other caregivers and um, that comes across very strongly modified expectations that adults have of children um, and Again, that's another similarity we can draw out and we'll see perhaps in some of the answers to some of the other questions. But also, I think think one of the interesting things I find is this ability to underestimate children. I think in the modern world, as much as in the medieval world, the idea that we assume that children can't do something purely based on age categories, um, whereas I think it's very clear that actually... In certain contexts, that we're sort of downplaying children's capabilities and agency. I think that's that's a kind of another comparison. Obviously, there are differences, and I, I don't want to just kind of um, say here that everything's always the same all the time, and that children and childhood uh, were very similar between the modern and medieval. But. The, some of the differences are in particular, things around like infant mortality, um, which obviously today is so many more children survive their first year, fifth year, 10th year than in the middle, middle ages. Um, but also the ideas around work and things aren't necessarily purely uh children working isn't purely limited to the middle ages that was also very much an idea all the way through until sort of really the only last 100 150 years so how much were medieval children allowed to be children i think again there we need to kind of question what do we mean by allowed But there's very clear evidence for play, for toys, and I'm hoping we'll get a chance to talk about those more in detail later. And I find the idea of childhood innocence a particularly interesting one. So there's actually two conflicting traditions in the Middle Ages, which are inherited from sort of a Christian and um, and antiquity, a Christian past and from antiquity. And they draw on different biblical passages and continue to be interpreted and debated in different ways. Uh, But the first, on the one hand, the sort of theologians and writers uh, who associate childhood with innocence. So I mentioned there the association between puritia being puritas, purity so sin is then associated with the onset of puberty which sees um, the onset of lusts and passions and that leads you into sin so that's very much associated with adolescence as being the time when you would come to sin and lose your innocence but on the other hand there's also an idea floating around that children were actually inherently sinful from the very moment of their conception and that's through this idea of inherited sin and all the way back to sort of the fall in the Garden of Eden and the idea that um, sin is conveyed through Adam's semen uh, that kind of passes down from from father to son. But actually even those who, people who are sort of associated with that position, so Augustine most famously claims to um, that, that children are inherently sinful. But even those people who are arguing that most kind of aggressively, still acknowledge the fact that children lack the ability to express their sin in the same way as adults. So there still is a differentiation there. And more practically, I think there's a very clear social, cultural, legal understanding that children need to be protected. And you can see that in sort of records of criminal cases, but also in the fact that blame for children's actions is often attributed to their parents or their caregivers, particularly their mothers. Uh, Mothers were particularly to blame for poor behaviour of children. And there's ways to protect them within school, schooling and uh, within their education. So one particularly interesting example is Giles of Rome writing about the education of elite boys suggests that they shouldn't be allowed to see the paintings or carvings of naked women until they're a lot older because that might influence um, their development and the way they see the world around them.
2: That that, that again is a brilliant answer. I'm going to jump on because we've got a question here. How different was childhood for uh, girls and boys now you've already um, mentioned the fact that maybe there were some sort of chronological differences in sort of definition of childhood so were there actual differences in the way that boys and girls were dealt with this this is a question from sarah clayton miss c history 21 on twitter
1: yes i think the years of infancy probably have the least obvious differences so we see things like um children being swaddled in clothes in the same way and being rocked in cradles um, and ages of weaning varied between different regions but often between the ages of 1 and 3 and it's then after that point that we start seeing gender having more of an impact i think um so childhood play was possibly less gendered than we might assume because there is evidence that boys and girls were playing outside together in mixed groups um definitely through those earlier years of childhood so 13th century literary texts giving the fun examples of children running around um, usually with other children of the same social status so the idea that status might have dictated more of your experience than gender at those earlier um ages but then we get on sort of further into childhood perhaps sort of as we're getting towards sort of five six seven um the allocation of household chores and child care are likely to become more gendered and further significant changes clearly seen around the age of puberty um, where young girls in particular tend to uh, be more closely watched and allowed less freedom than young men would have been and partly in concern about chastity um, so when you see advice and conduct literature that's directed towards uh, young girls and young boys the concern over Overall, is that young women would remain chaste and uh, guard themselves um, against the temptations of the world but also against um other and particularly against young men and the, being led astray in that way but medieval ideas about gender roles weren't fixed across the period they learned these ideas about gender roles from sort of playing with their peers and from their from their adults and we do see sort of um so things like apprenticeship which we might assume are purely uh, male dominated things we do actually see girls becoming apprentices as well taking on work entering domestic service but the ways in which they could do that again um were perhaps more more flexible um so girls often had shorter contracts for apprentices um, they started earlier sometimes rather than uh, boys starting around the age of 14 girls would have started around the age of 12 so there is an acknowledgement there that perhaps girls development started earlier and that would be reflected obviously in the way young bodies develop as well as as the social and cultural roles that they're encouraged to take on
2: you're giving us an, an amazing amount of detail here it's uh, surprising how much we know about this i guess um a lot of the things you're talking about you're drawing from legal texts from theological texts and, and that sort of thing but we've got a question here is how much direct evidence uh, do we have of what medieval children did or fought themselves. Do we can we see their voices at all?
1: Yeah, it's a lot harder to access their voices, and particularly before sort of the fourteenth, fifteenth century, when we get more autobiographical works surviving. So things like letters or diaries. It's it's a lot harder to access the direct evidence. Um, and like you said, we have all these documentary sources, legal records, historical writings, saints' lives are a really interesting one where we get a lot of our information, but. There is a clear kind of disconnect there. We don't necessarily know what every child was doing day to day on the ground or have access and definitely not access to their innermost thoughts and feelings about how they felt about going to work or how they felt about their school days. But some of the most vivid evidence, I think, comes from material culture. And some lovely example of um, children's graffiti. I mean, again, it it's, can be debated to what extent we know that that's definitely done by a child for certain. And there is you can't just assume that it's simply because something looks childlike that it wasn't necessarily done by a child. But there's a lovely uh, example of um, St. George and the Dragon in a church in Marsham in Norfolk, um, which has been assumed to have been done by a young child. And it's sort of very much reminiscent of, you know, if you look at the way children draw um, stick figures today or uh, animals, uh, you can see this sort of coming across. And there's also things like uh, small fingerprints and palm prints on medieval seals. So you start to get a bit more of materiality of the way in which children were living their lives. But it's most of the evidence that we have perhaps more of the intimate evidence is sort of parental advice literature to their young children so it's more coming again from adults directed towards children
2: now we've covered um some of this already and you sort of talked about how maybe the differences between social status were important for children but there's a, a a general search query which wants to know about the how the experience of children differed across sort of time and space and, and 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 social strata so presumably you know i've asked you to generalize a lot here and answer some questions in a very general sense but presumably it was very different um from the 10th century through to the 15th century, and depending on whether you were the son of a lord or the son of a peasant?
1: Yeah, I think one of the big things that it would have changed completely people's experiences was um, status. So, we have to remember at this point that a majority of people would not have been of elite and wealthy status. So, lower socioeconomic background was definitely much the common experience. Uh, a rural environment versus urban environment is another big change that you see, um, even in the sort of diseases that you might contract as young children or in the uh, work environments that might have been around you and the environments for play. So sometimes where you see accidental deaths, you can see there a difference between uh, the deaths that happened in rural Environments versus those that happened in urban environments, just because you have very different situations. So it's not just sort of change over time; it's also change and geographically where you were located, where you spent your years of childhood growing up. And we also have to remember that there would have been many children who would have spent their lives migrating from different place to place. And that's something that archaeologists are doing a lot of really interesting work in at the moment about how cho- children moved during the early years of their lives. Um, I don't know much about that myself from the technical side, but I think it's to do with the stable isotope analysis and uh, the bits you find in young people's teeth and that solidify at certain ages. So um so that's some really exciting stuff that's kind of ongoing at the moment is looking more at migration and how that impacted young children. But the idea that status was a huge thing, I think that's more important perhaps even than change over time, although there were clear changes and what we're seeing is the institutionalization of certain things that were affecting children. So education for example, increasing educational opportunities, as you get the growth of towns, you get the formation of universities, so young students become more common um you also then obviously get kind of expansion of working environments as well as towns grow um and the apprenticeship becoming far more formalized with for, form contracts um and indenture uh, records as well
2: let's go on to uh, have a quick chat about um work and play so really popular search engine uh, query is what work do children have to do so what do we know were they up chimneys all the time
1: <laughs> um perhaps not in fact actually i, I didn't go away and research chimneys I, i'll leave that to the early modernists um <laughs> <laughs> anyway i think m- main thing is obviously household economy is a big one so um t- chores and work that would have supported your family so child care is a big one older siblings looking after younger siblings not even and, you know with we, this we could even think about maybe five six-year-olds looking after two three-year-olds here keeping an eye on them whilst their parents have gone out to church or whilst their parents are getting on with other aspects of work around the home or in the field so other things perhaps uh, animal husbandry is an interesting one so you do get lots of record of young boys looking after cows pigs herding geese giving water to horses but also kind of uh, more rural and agricultural tasks associated with the yearly calendar so things at like harvest time families moving around to help with fruit picking that wouldn't just be the adults the young children would have been helping too more physical tasks associated with agriculture like plowing and mowing uh, would have been done by older children and adolescents but even there there was this idea that you didn't yet have the full strength to do them so it would have been something associated with kind of late teens early 20s rather than um, you know going straight to go and plow a field at age uh, six there's some really interesting evidence again from archaeology with uh, fingerprints of on um pottery handles so uh, Maureen Meller is the person who's done some work into this so the evidence perhaps suggests that um, young children were actually helping in industry like um, pottery where their fingers were more nimble and able to kind of do small detailed fine work uh, like moulding handles. And we also have things like technical training as well um, bringing in a little bit of extra income but also with an eye to developing your uh, your work life for uh, in future and your ability to earn an income as an adult domestic service was particularly uh, uh, somewhere where children would enter as pages or cupbearers in noble and elite households um, or kitchen staff and then when you become a bit older as a child so you're getting towards sort of twelve to fourteen again apprenticeship contracts as I said these are something that we have more evidence from from. from the later medieval period, but the London city customs from the late 13th century suggest that minimum age would have been about 12 to 14 to actually take up an apprenticeship contract and it usually lasted for around seven years for young boys but possibly shorter for young girls because it might only have lasted until you got married for example these are individual contracts and they cover a whole range of different clauses Uh, but i think we need to think about this more in terms of sort of a surrogate parenting rather than purely work because the apprentice became part of their master's household they would have eaten dinner together they would have uh you know socialized with the other children in the household they were given bed and board clothing sometimes taught to um taught to read specific books that would have been useful to their their training and obviously given a professional training in the uh, career or craft that they were going into and in return they promised uh things like faithful service not to go gambling not to go and frequent inns not to have sexual relationships with anyone in the household and the end of the contract for many young men would have been in their early 20s so this is a clear period where young children or adolescents were not quite yet fully adult members of society and they were treated in a different way and expected to uphold different standards but parental consent could still be important when these contracts were being made um, as well as the oaths of the adolescents themselves so it's not purely agency on one part or another it's more flexible than that
2: we should probably do another podcast on apprenticeships because it's such a fascinating topic there's so much to talk about There. it sounds like medieval children were probably fairly well occupied then quite often in terms of the uh, the amount of work they were required to do Um, which leads on to another question about how much free time did children have again a a big general question to ask but maybe you've got an answer to that and and sort of following that what sort of games did they play if they did have free time do we know anything about their their gaming activities
1: there's some absolutely Delightful stories of children at play in the Middle Ages. Um, And I don't think we can assume that they were occupied from sort of morning to to dusk with absolutely no time. Even things like doing household chores, you can play on the way, hanging around with your friends watching animals. Um, You might also be throwing stones together or um, doing play acting. So we can't assume that work is also. And the complete opposite of play the two could uh, could interact um, so some lovely uh, childhood memories of things like so Gerald of Wales talks about playing on the sand with his brother so he, Gerald of Wales was a cleric uh, in the late 12th century he spent time in the service of the English kings but he remembers playing on the sand outside his father's castle in Wales with his brother some of the hagiographical texts that we have so these Saints lives use play as a way of making a statement about Saints being different from other children but they also give a bit of an insight into games that children might have been playing so waldef the abbot of melrose his elder brother apparently uh, as they were growing up gathered twigs and branches to make Toy castles and had a hobby horse and played soldiers like the normal boys. But Waldef was special because he instead made uh, churches out of stones and he pretended to say mass, so he was pretending to be a priest already. And now, obviously, these these were these stories were told for a specific purpose about the adults that these children would become. But they do have these lovely stories, and in order to write about childhood play, you almost certainly need to have observed childhood play as well there's things like pretend weapons that survive so um the idea that the ways in which children play games were perhaps preparing them for military careers or for other aspects of adult life play fighting um there's also stories of imitation of recent historical battles um and in fact sometimes they escalate and lead to the death of a child which is actually why they end, we end up hearing about them because they come into the court records And children were taught to play as part of their social education. So it's seen as sort of games and things like uh, particularly board games and chess were very much a part of a social skill set that you acquired as a knightly elite. So you have to learn these when you're growing up in order to be able to participate in that society as you're older. And as I said, play can get children into trouble uh, as much in the past as it can today. So the court records and coroner's reports often mention play as a factor in records of children's deaths So and also in children's behaviour. So one of my favourite stories is from the Ramsey Abbey Chronicle which was written in the 12th century and there's a story of four young boys who are being educated at the Abbey early in the 11th century, so a bit late, a bit earlier uh, before the chronicle is written down but one day they're playing outside the cloister and they pull the bell ropes for fun and end up cracking a bell and then the monks are angry but the abbot kind of rationalise it saying, you know, they're just young boys but also when they become older they will then reward our monastery many Many times, if we don't punish them, whereas if we punish them, um, they will perhaps, you know, hold it against us as an abbey. So there's a, a kind of cynicism there, you know, like let let boys be boys, but only because they will come up to be the adults who then would be giving you gifts to your monastery.
2: You have you have some great stories here. This is this is excellent stuff. Um, you've covered this a bit, but a, a really big interest amongst our Instagram followers was what toys. Uh, medieval children now do we, have we got many examples from material culture of the source of toys that they they enjoyed
1: it's it's an area where i think there's again a lot more work is going on now than even sort of 10 20 years ago into what what do we even mean by toys um they're obviously often a lot of toys can be quite ephemeral um, materials which don't survive easily can be reused or destroyed when they're no longer needed for play um so we can think about things like natural items like shells pebbles and feathers and we we don't necessarily know or you know the example I gave of abbot um, the future abbot of um, melrose playing with stones we wouldn't know that children played with those unless we had the written evidence suggesting that that was what they were doing but we do also have things like created objects so there's a, been a big study um, a few years ago on metal toys from london from about 1200 through to 1800 um, now manufactured toys specifically for children are a feature of the much later in the middle ages so things like spinning tops lead knights horses But we do also have earlier examples made out of wood and bone, which have survived in the ways they survived usually in things like waterlogged land, where uh, it preserves the natural materials. Um, So we have these bone toys or wooden toys, which are in the shapes of small boats or weapons, horses and other animals there's a lovely toy duck from uh, probably eighth or ninth century sweden which is carved from antler as well Um, we don't know how children exactly would have played with them and we can't necessarily always assume that just because something is small that it was for children but there are miniature items such as miniature furniture miniature household objects and i've mentioned a few times that miniature weapons like swords were they toys were they items for introducing children to adult roles so they had a sort of socialization quality there or were they both were they neither were they more um, sometimes reused in religious rituals for example but we definitely have some fantastic examples um and i think one of the interesting things is also sort of odd toys Um, So stories of parents making do with whatever they have to hand to kind of keep their children occupied. Um, In one of the saints' lives, there's an example of a mother giving a drowned chick to her sons to play for, which is a little morbid from a modern perspective. Um, You can think the children would like to, you know, uh, stroke the soft fur and things, particularly if it just recently died. Um, But we only know about that because a miracle survives where the chick is then resuscitated by praying to uh, one of the saints, actually to Simon de Montfort, um, whose cult was a bit problematic at the time. Uh, but the chick was then brought to Simon's tomb as evidence that this miracle had happened, and the chick was alive um yeah, so some really odd stories of childhood play, but the the range of toys um I think is something that there's a lot more work that could be done into it and is currently ongoing um to think about how we how we think about toys and not just assuming that something is a toy because it's childlike but also not having these fixed categories of what is a toy and what's not i mean you know today you give a child a cardboard box with a toy in and they're often more excited by the cardboard box than the toy itself so there's definitely some some suggestions that you know things like shells and bones pebbles beads would have been fun items for children to play with in the past as well still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, And a 15th century Italian writer actually suggested cutting fruit and sweets into letter shapes to help children learn the alphabet, which I think is a great idea. Hola. Hello.
0: This call is being translated.
2: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tu sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer
2: Just going back to, to one of the, the previous um, questions about uh, the, the difference between, of uh, the experience between boys and girls, I wonder, there's nothing in terms of sort of, gendered toys like you know we have action men versus dolls today don't we and, and, and that's all sorts of debates about them the appropriateness or otherwise is, is there anything you can see in terms of gendered usage of
1: toys yeah so one of the one of the things is that dolls don't often survive because they're made of things like straw or perhaps cloth bits of cloth tied together but in manuscript illuminations there is a very clear gendered you know you do get the girl holding a young girl holding a doll and then a young boy perhaps playing with something more energetic or a toy horse or a toy sword so there is some suggestion there that they were gendered and definitely games became more gendered the the later you get into um into childhood um, and young girls would have been taught sort of leisure activities um young elite girls in particular leisure activities like embroidery and sewing um instead of being given the military training that boys would have been given but more gendered than that um it's very hard to tell from the evidence that we have Right, let's let's charge on because we've
2: got a lot to get through. Um, we're going to cover education now in uh, in uh, in quick time, I'm sure. So. So education, uh, a lot of people are interested in, in schooling. Uh, a basic uh, search is what was education like for most children? Um, and uh, Toby Will on Twitter wants to know what kind of schooling or education did people get?
1: Yeah, so if I give a very quick answer to that one, um, a parental home is the main place where children get their education. Um, and the majority of children, that would be in the key place for being taught all aspects. So we can think there of um, sort of early social tasks, but also role of mothers in infancy and early childhood in teaching moral and religious education. So teaching prayers, good manners. We also have evidence of texts written by parents uh, or by other adults to help children learn um, within the home. So there's a lovely... 13th century treatise on teaching uh, young children French uh, by a knight and landowner Walter of Bibbersworth and that's got some really interesting examples of sort of the sensitivities to children learning new vocabulary so it has things like teaching children names for the parts of the body a sort of medieval heads, shoulders, knees and toes and different sounds that animals make so geese gaggling uh, ducks quacking and things like that but that all happens in the home and sort of some of that would have been to prepare them for positions of future responsibility some of that would have been uh, to kind of get those religious ideas and there was a very much firm idea that uh, parents should be teaching their children prayers and the way in which to behave within church settings and religious settings Uh, but we do get some forms of schooling so again trying to stay briefly here age seven was quite significant for some young young people and particularly for young boys being sent off into schooling environments Um, fosterage was quite a big thing in certain parts of uh, of medieval europe particularly in places like ireland and wales so we see young people being sent to other people's households to be raised less so in places like germany and more among the elites than uh, perhaps lower down the social scale but formal schooling in the way that we would think of modern education was something that just was not accessible to most most young people. And from the 12th century onwards, there's more of a range of opportunities and things like the development of cathedral schools, um, grammar schools a bit later again. But what we think of as a school can, again, be quite quite different in the Middle Ages. So Giebert of Nogent, writing in the 11th century, talks about his attendance at school, but it was just his own dining room and he was the only pupil. So it's still a, a sort of school within and a home and tutors being um, appointed for teaching young children was also quite common, particularly among the elite and the nobility. But but the idea of a formal education, less accessible and on a gendered point, far less accessible to young girls in particular. Um, young girls could not attend universities when they're set up, whereas a young boy. Often went off to university around the age of 14 to 16. And formal schooling within sort of cathedral settings and things, again, purely for young boys um, although tutors could be appointed for young girls as well
2: there's some um, specific questions about uh, the, the the amount of reading and writing that children could do um, I'm sure this is an, an impossible question to answer but um, uh, uh, one, one question wants to know if uh, if we can estimate how many children would have learned to read and write uh, in the year 1400 uh, we'll take that one but also um, fake history hunter on twitter wants to know just generally how much reading and writing could the common child do asking about on film so you might want to just mention who Onfim
1: is or was? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give on Fim a brief a brief nod because he's really fascinating. Um, but I mean, how uh, I, I'm not even going to try and estimate. For <laughs> I'm going to say no, frustratingly, uh, because it would be great if we could know, but no, we cannot even estimate really the proportion of people. But we do need to remember that uh, the ways. Literacy was defined a really complicated and that we can't just assume that reading and writing came hand in hand. Things like memory was a more of a key skill of learning. And we can stories of young boys learning sort of books of poems off by heart are far more common than perhaps learning to write your name or, uh, but most children would have had some knowledge of. The alphabet. Um, So we get particularly from the 13th century onwards ABCs usually prefaced with a cross at the beginning. So again, this association of education and religion. And again, perhaps pointing worth pointing out here that Latin would have been far more um, or Latin education, learning to read and write in Latin, accessible to the elites in particular and to certain sort of clerical orders, but vernacular would have been more accessible further down. So learning to re- read something in English would have been far more accessible to a wider range of people. And by the 12th century, by, by 1300 in particular, um, far more people had access to some form of basic literacy than we might assume from a modern perspective although there were still people who could neither read or write. One of the famous examples is William Marshall, the knight, um, who apparently could never read or write uh, during his lifetime. But he would have been surrounded by literate culture as well, so he was still a part of that. Um, So on film, okay. Now, in the 1950s, uh, when there were being some big excavations in the city of, um, or just outside of the city of Novgorod, they found this collection of birch bark uh, texts. So there's more than 900 items surviving. And they, they all date from about the 11th to the 15th century. And one of the most interesting things that survives in there, from my perspective anyway, and from the perspective of this podcast, is the classroom jottings. So we have alphabets, we have doodles, we have syllabic uh, exercises, so sort of what rhymes with bar, what rhymes with sheep and sort of extracts from things like Psalters and Psalms and there's specifically about 17 doodles that are associated with a child called Onfim um, or we think that was their name uh, uh, because that's how they label uh, some of the diagrams and drawings that they do. He probably lived around about 1220s or 30s and uh, he does these wonderful stick figures of warriors on horseback um, a wild beast for example carrying a sign saying greetings from Onfim to Danilo so one of the things that has been suggested as that was a sort of you know drawing for your classhood friend, uh, class classroom friend, childhood friend, and the the kind of classic children drawing uh, hands like forks, so sort of three prongs for the fingers of, of their mother and father. That's on some of the drawings as well, and they're, they're fun. And we don't actually know very much about who Onfim was, or actually even whether there was in fact a child called Onfim, or whether this is perhaps some other interpretation. But it's a really interesting insight into the process of children learning to write uh, because it shows the uh, use of alphabet the syllable exercises and then copying of short texts um, and the very fact that they survive from so early um, is really phenomenal and yeah a wonderful resource the birch bark so anyone who wants to look it up go look for birch bark texts
2: and i guess that sounds like that's one of the possibly the one of the very rare examples of getting an actual child's well, not voice, but but drawings. There, in in a sense, so it goes back to your graffiti point earlier, I suppose, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, they look very. His drawings look very similar to some of the graffiti that you can see. So, yeah.
2: Okay, brilliant. Um, just one more quick one on on education. Uh, how were children disciplined or kept in line?
1: probably a very big topic. Yeah, huge topic. But very briefly, corporal punishment, uh, physical chastisement, absolutely uh, very common across the Middle Ages, across the entire period. And widely used. not just, I mean, on children, also on adults. So the punishment and physical correction of adults was very common too. Beating was accepted as part of the way to teach children and the way to educate them. But there were debates about the nature of this punishment so how severe should it be um should you be more gentle with certain children or at certain ages so we do see people like anselm the monk of beck who became abbot of uh, archbishop of canterbury suggesting that kindness is more effective um so it's not necessarily everyone agreed that punishment was the only way and it had to be really strict um there's far more debate about that and the use of harsh words as well comes up time and time again this kind of combination of you should fear and love your teacher um, was something that um we do get commentary on and the idea that poor teaching could actually be the reason why a teacher would resort to physical punishment. So Gibert of Nogent talks a bit about that and says that his teacher couldn't explain himself very well so he took it out on his uh, his pupil. So the, the idea that punishment wasn't necessarily only because pupils had been bad but actually could compensate for um, a poor teaching is an interesting one as well. Uh, but yeah physical punishment very much a part of the medieval childhood experience not just in the classroom but also within uh, sort of apprentices within their master's household would have been beaten um, p- parents using force on their children for example but there is a firm line between excessive force so uh, when you see cases coming into court the debate is not that was force okay or not it's more was that excessive and if it seemed to be excessive the adult in question is often themselves punished
2: kind of links into our next topic area in a, in, a, in a very in a very rough way about mortality and risk um, a lot of people are interested in what were the sort of the biggest risks facing medieval children um, and then a, a specific question from Laura Lanning uh, on Facebook who wanted to know what was the most common cause of death um, during different ages for children I'm sure that's quite a difficult thing to do but but um, but what do we know about those two areas
1: yeah there's been some fascinating work on um, death particularly in uh, medieval England uh, by Barbara Hanover who's looked at the uh, records that survive for accidental deaths Um, so particularly the sort of different records in the coroner's roles about the ways in which children encountered accidental death and then the cases came to court so figures for infant mortality i mean death is the key risk to children figures for infant mortality are really notoriously hard to calculate but a rough estimate over the period is that it would have likely stood between about 30 to 50 percent so it would vary obviously year to year from place to place and to to do with family circumstances status gender environment but this isn't just um something that affects uh, sort of people lower down the social scale uh, infant mortality is something which elite families too um, also uh, suffered um, so Nicholas Orme's study of the English royal family identified 96 children I think it was b- born between the 12th century and the 16th century of those 96 children less than half of them uh, survived through to their 20s and over a third of them actually died in their first year so if we turn to the question about sort of what are the risks between year to year Year for young children will in the first year of life huge amounts of risks disease cradle death is a big one Uh, sometimes so sometimes children would have been left unattended in their cradles so that could be death by sort of an animal a domestic animal pigs in particular are the animals mentioned that particularly come and knock over cradles or um, even horrifically eat children Um, and pigs are well known for getting rid of organic human matter so um, yeah uh, not particularly nice fire was obviously a big danger. to those under the age of one and then when we get sort of through to early infancy into two and three children are more mobile so accidents happen in the home but also outside the home drowning was a big one uh, in wells rivers mill ponds but also accidents in the street uh, so being knocked over by a cart or by a horse and then accidental death drops off after about age four and that's probably in part because children actually might have been receiving greater supervision at that age as they were being taught to do tasks around the household or beginning to do sort of early bits of work but you get more work-related accidents as you reach uh, puberty and adolescence things like home-based industry accidents again not particularly nice to look at those records uh, but it does really show that the risks associated with childhood primarily are to do with death or severe accidents and i don't think I mean, definitely we can't blame that purely on neglect in any way the when these events are recorded in court records it's rarely for neglect that they come in it's more the trauma of the events that comes to the fore in the these court records and the fact that parents were having to themselves balance a lot of different things to do with work and family life um as well but differences in as i mentioned earlier in the sort of urban and rural deaths is an interesting one as well so um you were at risk of different things where depending on where you lived
2: again it's interesting just how much you are able to say on these topics the sources that do illuminate us quite a lot on, the, on these areas don't they
1: yeah they do and i think i think that's one of the um, one of the things that sort of since i've started looking at childhood and adolescence is there's a lot more evidence out there than perhaps i think children tend to be underrepresented in modern historical writing but that's not because the sources aren't out there you just have to look around a bit more you have to be prepared to look at archaeological sources as well you have to yeah really cast your net a bit wider but there is a lot of information out there
2: Let's finish up with just a, a few um, more, more random questions um, from our listeners. One from Joe Brown here who wants to uh, to hear if you've got anything to say about the story of the green children of Woolpit which I know is a very popular search engine query as well. So what, what can you tell us about this curious episode?
1: Yeah this is a really curious story. So um, it's told to us by William of Newburgh who's writing from Yorkshire in the sort of late 12th century and um, basically he tells a story about 50 years earlier during Stephen's reign that a girl and a boy entirely Green bodies emerged from the ground, sort of some ancient ditches outside of this Suffolk town of woolpit And they spoke a strange language. They wore strange co- clothes made of material that no one had ever seen before. They only ate green be- beans fresh from the pod, and that apparently accounted for their skin color. Because when they then start to eat bread, they turn a slightly less green shade of uh, human. <laughs> a shade of human. Uh, there we go. <laughs> uh, but they, when they're taught English, they then uh, claim that they've come from an underground country uh, where the sun doesn't rise or set. It's called St. Martin's Land. So this is a really, really weird passage, but it comes in a list of other marvellous and miraculous events in uh, William of Newburgh's Chronicle of the History of English Affairs. And William of Newburgh himself seems especially puzzled by this, but he records it because apparently it's, you know, told to him by reliable people. And he's not the only person to record that around the same sort of time. So about two decades later, another chronicler, Ralph of Coggershall, also writes about it. But we don't think they were using the same well don't think they were using the same source or that they'd kind of come into contact with each other because ralph of Coggeshall element emphasized different elements so whereas william of newborough sort of says that the girl actually ends up marrying and sort of becoming a part of the local society and she doesn't really differ from um from other women ralph of Coggeshall instead says that the young girl became a servant and was a very wanton uh girl who didn't fit in and sort of you know was b- poor behavior so some interesting things that have been said about this on the internet uh one of the most interesting is obviously that um (laughs) the green uh children have have attracted all sorts of extraterrestrial theories and sort of aliens and things i mean the stories although there's these two instances of story being told in sort of quite close succession in the 12th and 13th century it then doesn't really get discussed again until it resurfaces in the mid-19th century and that's sort of this idea of it as an early sci-fi fiction story is, is an is a bizarre one but yeah I think more more interesting to me is are the interpretations which have sort of thought well if these were real children who were they so one suggestion is that they were flemish immigrants um because they didn't speak a language but perhaps instead they might have been children suffering from a dietary deficiency that sort of tinted their skin green and there are apparently dietary deficiencies that do that although not like a lurid green more of a sort of um, light green but another way to think about it is so um, making sense of events uh, in recent years in English history so Catherine Clark has talked about this as a way of making sense of the traumas of conquest and civil war associated with Stephen's Stephen's reign Um, and Geoffrey Cohen has talked about it as a form of um, sort of understanding cultural assimilation um, and particularly attitudes to Race and identity uh, in the medieval world. I think it tells us less about medieval children themselves, and actually far more about the ways children are used to tell stories to adults, and the ways in which children sort of become the means to convey a range of different messages, rather than perhaps that there were in fact two green children wandering around in Suffolk. Um, but yeah, that's my my opinion.
2: No, f- thank you. That's really interesting, and I'm sure I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that, and maybe that will dispel a few a few of the uh, the wilder ideas about what uh, the green children walk might have been about um dr julia fairs wants to know did medieval children have bedtime stories
1: yeah so the idea of bedtime stories told to you just before you go to sleep oh i've struggled to come across evidence for that however there are some lovely stories about children being part of storytelling culture in the middle ages and we know for example that parents were writing expecting their children to read so um the book of the night of the tower which was written in the uh the 14th century by a man for his daughters, letters written uh, to children, texts specifically written for children, a lot harder to find if we are making this a very distinct category. But when we think of children as part of a mixed audience, we can think of things like um, the oral culture around uh, chansons de geste and romance texts. The idea that um, perhaps these heroic tales were especially appropriate ones for young people comes across in some of the conduct literature. So an Italian writing from Germany in the early 13th century, Thomas in the Claria um, suggests that actually uh, these were adventure stories as he describes them were particularly appropriate for children um, because they broadened their minds uh, but then when you reach a specific age and you sort of you have more understanding maturity should then t- make you turn away from these stories and we can also think about children being part of the audience when these uh, kind of heroic epics were uh, performed at feasts and in elite halls um, there's also songs and rhymes to teach children how uh, how to learn their sort of ABC animal stories like Aesop's fables and other one, other other stories in particular which might have been specifically sort of their content or their linguistic traits that made them specifically suitable for children. One of the really interesting ones is um, apocryphal stories of Jesus's childhood. So this is a sort of reimaginings reimaginings of Jesus between the age of about five and 12. And they talk about Jesus making clay birds with his friends, um, walking on rainbows, uh, attending school, fighting a dragon in one of the episodes, I think. Now, they're just so focused on children and childhood and they would have made such you know interesting tales to to talk to 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 tell children and there's very much an oral culture around them before they're written down but they also contain really vitriolic anti-semitic elements as well um so they were also a way of teaching children social attitudes um and at the time sort of uh, anti uh, anti-jewish um sentiment was obviously very much a part of medieval um society so so there's a sort of more sinister element to some of those as well
2: one of our, our regular correspondents for this series, uh, Agro Biodiverse. Um, thanks for your question again. Brilliant question. Were uh, medieval children addicted to sugar? And if so, in what form? Uh, he, he's assuming honey
1: yeah so honey is the main sweetener so uh up until sort of the 13th century really um we don't really get sugar as as prominently and even then um it would have been sort of specifically confined to the elites in particular but the idea of soaking uh, bread and honey in milk to make what's called a pat was recommended by 13th century physicians for children and for weaning in particular to get them sort of onto solid food and then when they can chew um sort of tarts made from bread and sugar the other context that you find to children, uh, sugar, actual, actual sugar being given to children is twisted sticks of sugar when they're ill, so it's seen as something that helps with sickness, particularly for noble and royal children. And we have evidence in household accounts of flavoured sugars, sort of particularly flavoured, um, particularly expensive tastes would have had rose or violet flavoured sugar. But there is there is a, a, a prominent idea that children love sweet things. Mainly, children love fruit, which is an interesting one from the sort of modern perspective of struggling to get people to eat their fruit and vegetables. But the stories of children begging fruit from their, their parents, stealing fruit from orchards. Walter of Bibbersworth, the treaty that on French that I mentioned, has this whole section on how you should prepare food for, for children. I mean, some of it's quite self-evident, like you should just take the shell off an egg. But then other things like the acknowledgement that children really love apples, but for young children, you need to core and pip them um, so that they don't, they don't choke. And a 15th century Italian writer actually suggested cutting fruit and sweets into letter shapes to help children learn their alphabet, which I think is a great idea.
2: Are there any um, a, a particular... Uh, a uh, concern of mine uh, uh, with my children getting them to eat anything other than chicken nuggets and pasta. Are there any examples of um, of picky children uh, in in the Middle Ages?
1: I thought this is a wonderful question, but I I can't find picky children. I can just find children uh, who are greedy and eat too quickly. Um, so conduct literature talks about um, the ways in which children should behave at the table and um, the idea that they uh, shouldn't drink too much wine, they shouldn't suck their soup loudly, things like that. But children were often exempt from the fasting adults would have done. So there's an idea that um, children needed encouragement to eat things at times that when adults could go without. But no, I've really, really struggled to find picky children. Um, The only sort of, I guess, pickiness um, perhaps is in in some of the hagiographical literature, saints' lives. Um, You do get some saints who are a bit picky about breast milk, um, but that's for for sort of religious reasons. And, you know, that has a very interesting back history itself. So I'm not going to go off on that tangent, but that's about the only pickiness i've come across um although oh a really interesting one on on adolescence eating um so Bede, uh, writing from northumbria in the 8th century um i mean there's this medical uh, idea that adolescents have a strong excess of red collar in their blood but Bede specifically says that's why young people are lean but they eat a lot so despite the fact they eat a lot they still stay really skinny those horrible adolescents and their uh, wonderful metabolisms yeah uh, he was sagacious as well as venerable wasn't he
2: with Bede? <laughs> <laughs> um right okay let's uh, let's finish up the last one a massively popular uh, internet search question what did medieval children wear we got um, got much evidence for that
1: Yeah, so this is the one where, again, like I think there's a common misperception uh, about, you know, children being mini adults because all they wear is grown-up clothing, uh, but in smaller versions. Um, I mean, infants, obviously, that's the big difference between uh, grown-up clothing. Your infants were swaddled. They were wrapped in long strips of cloth um, and it gave them, you know, warmth, protection. But there is a lack of evidence for children's toilet training. So we don't know what children would have worn whilst they were being taught to to use a toilet. So probably a lot of them ran around naked or at least partially closed and then when we get sort of uh, to the point where they can control their own bowel movements they were wearing smaller clothes smaller versions of adult clothing but that's a really poor way for judging um, you know what actually that means about the way adults think about children they would have usually worn a loose long outer garment at, um, so sort of like a woolen gown linen and then under, underwear would have been things like breeches or stockings usually children were bareheaded uh, but once girls married they would have worn hair, head headdresses dresses and there's some wonderful um, leather shoes that survive children's shoes in the museum of london sort of dating from the 14th or 15th century but again sort of like sort of smaller versions of adults ones and we get a lot of accounts of um, in elite household accounts spending on children's clothing the idea of purchasing cloth or furs in order to make them uh, robes and by the 14th century there are some of the sumptuary laws uh, in italian cities which criticize mothers for letting their children dress extravagantly but i haven't quite worked out what extravagantly means whether that's bright colors whether that's um you know and definitely at that point it's still not exactly sort of a whole culture of children's clothes in the same way that we would think of it today but yeah the we should also remember i think that the evidence for material culture of clothing more broadly but also specifically for children is quite limited because again it's this kind of um quite ephemeral thing that breaks down doesn't survive is reused and i definitely it definitely can't be used as the pure evidence alone for adults were treating children like miniature adults um yeah no don't don't buy into that don't don't yeah
2: Fantastic. We should probably just set sumptuary laws you just mentioned. There. Those oh, are the yeah. laws, the sort of the restrictions about what people could wear according to their social status, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And some of that, as I said, there are occasional mentions of age, but it's far more usually about social status than uh, than specifically about age.
2: Brilliant. Well, Emma, it feels like we could have talked uh, uh, for a lot longer about this. There's so many um subjects here that it would be really good to to go into in more detail. I hope that's given our listeners a, a good sense about the sort of the general experience. I wonder if there's anything that you wanted to say in conclusion or anything we haven't mentioned. but it. It's probably worth mentioning the sort of your research area is mostly Northern Europe, right? So I don't know whether you know if we'd have spoken to someone else about Southern Europe or about areas outside of Christendom, we'd have had a, a quite a different conversation, I guess.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think that's one of the things I really would like the listeners to go away with is this idea of the huge variability in childhood experiences. And I'm, I'm speaking mainly from the sort of perspective of Northwestern Europe uh, between about the 11th and 14th centuries, but. There's a lot of other evidence out there. Um, and I think, yeah, if you'd had somebody whose specialism was in a different area, they might have come back with some, ho- hopefully not too different, but definitely some very different examples. And um, yeah, there's there's just a lot of stuff out there. And I think the other thing to go away with, hopefully, is that children and childhood as a distinct stage is something that you do see in the middle middle ages and the idea that children had to be treated in different ways or had time to play um yeah life was hard in the middle ages there um there were children who were abused and who um uh, did not grow up in the same way that we would hope that children today will but there is also some glimmers of those kind of insights into children's lives in ways which we might not have expected before kind of turning to the evidence
0: That was Dr. Emily Joan Ward. Her next book, Royal Childhood and Child Kingship, will be out soon with Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.